Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Rather, it 
together. Because, you see, it wasn't only counterintuitive to you this morning here at Mosaic Silver Springs. It was counterintuitive for all the scientists who were working on this. And so they had to figure out when they published papers and when they translated tables into text. And then when they talked to media outlets, when they released their findings, how do we frame up this connection with Isaac? The author is a public health historian, and he notes in the article, I've studied how teams of researchers process data, mingle them with theories, and then package the results of, quote, what science says. And that's really what the article is about. He is trying to engage uh, not only how we explore knowledge in our world, but in particular uh, how scientists then frame that up. And, and the bottom line through the article is that scientists are human beings. They don't come to their work with a blank slate, uh, but rather they come with assumptions, and uh, they come with beliefs, and they bring that to the table when they're working through the data. Here's uh, one of the quotes from the article that I found particularly insightful. In 2004, the English epidemiologist Michael Marmot wrote, Scientific findings do not fall on blank lines. They get made up as a result. Science engages with busy minds that have strong views about how things are and ought to be. Marmot was writing about how politicians deal with scientific evidence, always assuming that the latest data supported their existing views. But he acknowledged that scientists weren't so different from the politicians. In Paul's argument to Corinth, this is just before this Atlantic Monthly article ever came out, Paul noticed a further expansion of that quote from the article, that it's not just politicians who can take data and kind of package it to confirm what they already believe or what they want to see. It's not only scientists who come to data, uh, not as blank slates, but as people with busy minds and sets of beliefs, but that that is the human condition, that uh, we are part of a broader story, that you live enculturated lives. You have a family of origin. You have been bombarded with messages through your entire life. And that that makes your mind busy so that when you hear the news that God is doing something through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you don't come to that just as some sort of blank slate evaluating that merely on its own terms. But you have a lot of stuff that you're bringing with you when you evaluate that stuff. And so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's trying to do business with that reality. He is making the case that the good news is good for us in the midst of our own failures. That the good news is good for us even across cultural lines and across time and space. That the good news is good for us because it is what God is doing in order to bring about ultimately our salvation business with our own sin and with dependence on Christ himself. And so this morning, if you 
can't do our own moral choices about justice and freedom and autonomy when we think through and come to ethical questions that are real about sex, about money, about power, about any of the dynamics of our lives, what Paul is trying to make the case for here is what God has done on the cross through Jesus has a life-shaping effect for you. That when you uh, come to these kinds of questions with your own experiences and your own family of origin and your own cultural values, part of our call for people who have seen uh, the glory and grace of God's work of Jesus on the cross, that begins and must shape how we navigate the busy lives of these questions. And so that's what we're going to pick up this morning in two points, world-changing news and life-changing business, at least initially in chapter 1 of Corinthians, with some of the divisions that have cropped up within the church, but here in verse 18, he seems to flip a bit and focus them uh, in the midst of their own kind of internal church divisions, remember the power of the cross. It is world-changing news. And so he opens up in verse 18 this way, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are foolish. I'm sorry. Not to those who are preaching. That would be bad. Talk about bad reading. Yeah, good text. Uh, I'm going to start that aside. We'll start over. Verse 18, follow along with me. See, this is why we want you to have Bibles open in front of you. We want you to follow along with the text. Okay. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here, Paul is using present participles to describe the two sides of the same coin of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. What he's saying is God is doing something through Jesus. God taken on flesh, gone to the cross, died for you and me, and that reality has two sides to it that he expresses this way. On the one side, it is utter to those who are perishing. People who think to themselves, if the God who created the world has to save me through the cross, I better park my own path forward. And the cross is folly to me. Uh, it's just something that easily we set aside. That's one side of the reality of how God has graciously chosen to deliver you and I in this world. But on the other side, for those of us who have felt enslaved to sin and have turned in faith to Jesus and are being actively delivered, have felt this sense, have recognized the reality of God's grace, are made alive for those of us, it is the power of the cross that he will enter into our world and save us from ourselves and our junk and set us free. And so Paul uses these two present participles to describe uh, in contrasting ways how this good news lands on people. He's making plain that God's work and redemption for you and I, it is world-changing news, but it doesn't land equally on everyone. In the first century world, 
the cross, it was like a Roman flex of power. That, that's effectively what it was. The Roman hung the worst or usually the lower strata of people on crosses as a public display of their own power. It was like a visible sign on the road to show people we're the Romans and we're in charge. That's the purpose that it served. And so if that's the world that you lived in, the fact that God would send his son to take on humanity to deal with the reality of sin and death in such a brutal and high voice way. So the psalmist says, I can't live that way back in my day. I can't live that way. And so for them, in the first century world, Jesus hanging on the cross was the proof that is not who he said he was. It was positive. They can't have it both ways. But Paul writes and says, yet for those of us who were imprisoned to sin, who desperately wanted to do what God wants us to do, and yet always struggle to fight against it through temptation and pressure and stress and anxiety, when we came to know Jesus, we experienced a freedom that we never knew. When we heard the words of Jesus declare that He is the Son of God, come to bring about salvation, not only for you and I, but for the world, we believed. It's in the cross that I think was understood here in His resurrection they found clearly this is the power of God to protect us. And, and so, to, to develop this point further, what Paul does is he goes back and he actually quotes the prophet Isaiah. And you can see it there in your uh, typically in English translations of Bibles. What they do is they indent Old Testament quotes as a way to pull it out for you so you can say, oh, oh this, he's like quoting something of old, right? And so you can see it in verse 19. Uh, it gets indented. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will destroy it. Paul draws on Isaiah's prophetic quotes as a way to say, yeah, and this is in the news. This is how God works in the world. Now, I want to make one quick qualification for all of us here because I think it's important. This Old Testament quote of Isaiah, if pulled out of context, could be used in some ways to say God destroys the wisdom of the wise as a way of making an anti-intellectual statement of what he's saying. I do not think that Christianity is anti-intellectual. I think that's a hard thing to bite on and debate on. And so I just want to deal with that clearly in our text. That destroying the wisdom of the wise doesn't mean that Christians aren't thinking people. Christianity, friends, is not a blind leap of faith. It is an eyes wide open pressing forward to see the power of God shows the real God. And so if you're here and you are day-to-day world, using your mind and intellect. Praise the Lord for those gifts and keep using them. That's not what Paul's talking about here. If you go back later and you look at that quote in Isaiah, here's what he's talking about. God sent the prophet Isaiah to call the people to turn from idolatry and to be faithful to what he's called them to do. And the people in Isaiah's day, they decided, no, Isaiah, we're wise. We don't have to listen to what you say or even what God says. 
we have a political deal cooking with Egypt, and it's going to deliver us. We're just going to trust in ourselves, and we're going to go our own way. That is the wisdom, in quotes, wisdom, that Paul is talking about. It's this active choice to hear and see what God's doing and say, oh, that's foolishness. I'm going to go a better way. I know better than God. That's the, quote, wisdom that Paul's talking about here. Through the prophet Isaiah, he declared that kind of wisdom
Uh, in, in a sense, this is the way that God changed the world in terms of bringing about salvation. It was through Jesus. And it's on offer for all who believe. And then he starts to use two categories that are representative of basically everyone in Paul's world and in the world in which he's writing. That is, the Jewish people, the ethnic group of the people of God, who through all of the Old Testament story of later redemption are from God's covenant and and the covenant promises of God. He is going to do business not only with them, but with the Greeks, which I think is a broad-handed way of Paul communicating for everyone else. And, and so when you read often in Paul for the Jews and the Greeks or the Jews and the Gentiles, this is almost a, a, a way of saying everybody, uh, everyone who is living and operating in the world. And so he says, this good news is for humble folks. It is for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It seeps into the cultural norms and realities of everyone's life. And and then he gives a a couple of examples, right? Uh, For those who work for critical times, for mystical people, for people who say, I'm going to go my own way, and I'm just going to try to figure out a set of critical signs to kind of guide me down that road. He's saying the, the news of Jesus is good for them. But it's also good for the Greeks who say, I I don't want anything to do with that religious stuff. I'm going to just pursue wisdom in this good storm. As if that were possible, but that's the direction they go. The wisdom of the world and the pursuit of it. Paul says, this is for them. This good news is for them. And so what he's doing is giving this expansive invitation any who has ears would hear and believe. And he's saying, then this begins to shape our lives. It begins to take effect in how we live day to day. Because if you now understand the cross of Jesus Christ as the power of God's grace working through you, what that means is when we come uh, to the other big things in our life, the pursuit of freedom, justice, uh, the navigating ethical questions, when Jesus, the one who died on the cross for us and rose from the dead, and is our hope that he returns, uh, when he gives commands about how those things work out, then uh, that shapes our lives, or at least, so Paul would say, it should Christians, we can uh, view uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ as uh, the privacy agreement uh, that you check uh, whenever you sign up for a new website. You know what I'm talking about? It's like four-point font, and you have to scan like a ton of it, and then just click at the end and say, I accept, because then you can get in and do whatever you want. There's a danger of thinking that this world-changing good news is just like that opening privacy agreement. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flip through the pages of scripture, where do I, I agree, check, move on. Okay, now I can live however I want. Christianity, it, it's just, a, it's not meant, designed, it just doesn't work that way. If you read, not, not even the four-point font, but actually any of the fonts of the pages of scripture, right? Uh, that 
design of it is to say, you have been a slave to sin. Now you've been set free through the power of gospel salvation. So now, go into the world living in light of this freedom that you experience, pursuing justice in light of what God has accomplished, uh, living your life ethically when it comes to things like sex and money and power, as God has called you to because you have the freedom to do that, and by doing it, it serves as a testimony to others that this is where the power of the king truly that's what we participate in as we become Christians. Many years ago, uh, I was trying to think this week, what's the equivalent of this? And I'm not sure. So if you're here and you're uh, younger than 20, uh, if you think about what the parallel is to today, will you text me during Q&A or let me know later? I'd love to find out. But uh, roughly when I was in middle school, we had a magic eight ball. And the magic eight ball was something that you would shake up like an eight ball like that on, on a pool table and inside there was this cube and the cube would like spin around and then it would pop up with your answer and uh, it felt like when you had the magic eight ball that you had the answer to everything in the world in your own hands does this feel like me we shake up the magic eight ball and I can find out because the magic eight ball will give me the answer now here's what you quickly find out when you do this in a room with more than one person if it shows up that it's not the answer that you want to see, what do you do? You shake it again. You dropped it on the ground. I don't know exactly what it said. You shake it back up. You shake it again. And it's like you keep shaking it until you get the answer you want. Okay. Here, I don't know what the 21st century equivalent of that is. So if you're younger than 20 or 25 and you know what the equivalent of the Magic 8 Ball is today, I think you could probably only get that, like, in retrospect, then let me know I'm actually interested. But here's the point of all that. Often as Christians, we scroll through the good news, we check the box, and we think, I'm good, and then we treat every other ethical decision as if the Bible is some sort of magic eight ball in our lives. And I'll just shake the pages of Scripture until it comes out with the answer that I really, really want. And if uh, it, it's an answer that I go, up again, I'll keep shaking it. And what's tough is the story of Christianity is so long and so robust. Oftentimes you can find an answer that fits your own suitable needs. Part of why we emphasize community here in this space, part of why we gather together and we have community groups and we want you to be connected, is when you're in real friendship and relationship with other people, it gets harder to drop the page of Scripture and pick it back up and be totally in full. You're going to come across people who you disagree with. You're going to come across people that see patterns in your life and they say, hey, I don't know if living in this sort of way or making this kind of decisions is the healthiest for you. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, in line with this world-changing news of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And then you could work that together. Does anyone have an unfettered or clear view on every answer for all of life? No. Not even me. And I've been doing this for a long time. I'm educated, but we've done it for a long time. The Christian faith has always involved some form of change. 
biblically that has at least two words. The first is in humility, no, I don't know it all. If you fooled yourself into thinking, I know it all, I know all the answers, it's all mine, 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 then if someone comes along and says, hey, I don't know that that's in line with the pages of Scripture, I don't know if that's the healthiest inclusion of word pattern for you to be living, then if there's no humility, you have no ears to hear that. Immediate response, defensiveness, and attack, right? Uh, defensiveness, no, 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 you just don't understand, and then you don't know any better than me. And if that's a pattern that marks your life and you're here and you're a Christian, then consider the lifespan of Christ. Paul here is writing to a church, to a people that have mixed up in a variety of different things. He's writing to correct them, not because somehow uh, they don't drink, they don't participate in sports, but rather because they call themselves Christians, they have to have the humility to work out the Christian character in their day-to-day lives as a church that actually loves Jesus. That's that humility is what it's all about. The, the other part is community, right? This, this connection with other people. People see your anger, and they experience your anger in ways that you aren't always aware of. Why? Because most of the time, people who feel angry, they feel entirely justified and righteous in how they're feeling. But sometimes there's a mismatch. They overreact. They sinfully react. It, are, it, it devoids of others speak into that that can often bring our attention to how our lives aren't in line with who God has called us to be. There's so much more to cover. In the weeks ahead, what our hope is, as a community, is we're going to start looking at these angles. God's justice for the world. How does that good news play out for us? How does it play out with your own sense of rest? What about how you think about things like luck and providence or love or hope? And in the weeks ahead as a community, we're going to begin to pick up those angles and to work through, I hope, in humility and I hope in community through the pages of Scripture together. It's no way to make real God-honoring Scripture with just a bunch of words on a page. It's far better to do that in conversation with the pages of Scripture themselves and in community and humility moving forward with eyes wide open. Faith, that's who we want to be as a community. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we uh, worship you this morning, that give us humility. Not in a way that we walk around telling people how humble we are, but in a way that actually uh, breaks down um, the walls of arrogance and stubbornness and anger in our own lives so that we might be listening to those who care for us, to those who are part of our community, that we can listen and learn and grow from the pages of Scripture, and, and that we will live lives marked in the pursuit of that good news. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate. 